Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Lost in Science for another week. Good to have you with us. My name is Claire and this week on the show I'm actually freshly back from Indonesia. Uh, I was over there. Welcome back Claire. Oh thanks Chris. Thanks so much. Yeah I was over there for two weeks and during my visit I um, was lucky enough to go to Komodo National Park. Should be one of the natural wonders of, of the world because amongst other things Dragons live there. There be dragons. There be dragons there. Um, so I'm going to tell you some things that I didn't know before about Komodo dragons that I know now. Right. Excellent. Yeah. And Stu, what do you have for us today? Well, I am going to be talking about a chemical called glyphosate, which people have probably heard of. Probably Roundup. The, probably the most commonly yep. known formulation is Roundup, which is, yeah, but it's uh, it's one of the most used agricultural chemicals in the world. Um, and it's been in the news a bit lately. There's a court case in America involving the manufacturer or one of the manufacturers of glyphosate. And there's also been a report published in the last couple of weeks about glyphosate and bees. And I'm going to talk about both of those things and sort of um, poke some holes in them, basically. I feel like this is one of your favourite subjects. It kind of is. It's just that, you know, because it is one of the most used agricultural chemicals, it's worth, it, yeah. it makes a yep. big difference if if rules change around it, basically. So, it, yeah, it will affect a lot of people. Yeah, and we do rely on you, Stu, to give us a bit of a, a roundup of this news. On with the show. <laughs> So I just returned from Indonesia where I visited the home of the world's largest lizard, the Komodo dragon, that is. Yeah. Are they are they the only dragons? There's a lot of lizards that are called dragons, though, aren't there? There's the eastern bearded dragon, which is an Australian lizard. But these ones are massive. They're very big. They can get up to three metres long. That is enormous. That's it is big. enormous, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So they, they live in Komodo National Park, situated between the islands of Flores and Sumbawa in East Indonesia. And they're pretty much for everyone at home. Just think about a goanna on steroids, a three metre long goanna. I've seen some pretty big goannas, but none of them were three metres. Three metres long. Oh, my God. Um, And up close, they are pretty intense. The ones I saw weren't that quick to move, although uh, they can get up to be clocked at about 20 kilometres an hour over a very short distance. How fast can you run, Claire? Um, Less than that. (laughs) There's actually some great videos on YouTube of people running away from Komodo dragons, Japanese game shows. Yeah, um, if you've got a bit of spare, spare, spare time. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> so when I saw them, they were moving pretty slowly, but very deliberately, right. and you didn't want to get in their way. Uh, luckily, I was with a ranger, and he had um, a big stick with a fork on the end. That was actually all he had, just a big stick with a fork on the end. 
Um, so I and that, that was that was his that defense was, against that was dragons. His, yeah, like that was a pitchfork his defense against. Like, well, a pitchfork normally has three prongs, doesn't it? How many did he have? It was two. It was just one, just oh. forked at the end. It was just a big branch with a fork at the end. I, I kind of think that would annoy them more than anything else. <laughs> Maybe it was the exact distance between their eyes, so we could just, just poke, poke them in, in the eye. eyes or something. I don't know. Anyway, um, it was pretty incredible to see them, though, in their native habitat, especially knowing how dangerous they can be. They take down deer, so there are deer that live um, in their habitat, on a, and on a regular basis they take down the deer. And also there are buffalo on the island, which they can eat. They, they will, like, attack and kill a buffalo? Well, they will attack buffalo, yes, um, or they'll or buffalo will die from natural causes. And they'll just and they'll scavenge. Just, they'll just scavenge on the buffalo. I guess you live on an island, you just eat whatever you feel like. Yeah. Exactly. They rely on sight quite heavily. They can see up to 300 metres in front of them, which is quite a lot considering they have such squinty little eyes. Mm. And most importantly, they use their sense of smell. I actually sat down with a national park ranger. Her name was Lillian. She was a champion. And she told me a story. Um, She was a national park ranger for 20 years on Komodo Island, and she told me the story of a Komodo dragon that found her when she was in the toilet. So she had her period on the commode. On the commode. <laughs> on the commode. Yeah. Yes. So she had her period, and the Komodo dragon could smell blood. So it showed up in front of the toilet, and then yes, yeah, started. I mean, maybe not knocking on the door, but it was banging on the door trying to get in. And she was in there for hours trying to get this, trying to keep this Komodo dragon from getting into the toilet. Finally, she made a dash from the commode, um, from the dunny to her house, but the dragon was like hot on her heels and wouldn't leave her alone. So she locked herself in the house. The dragon was circling the house for about 10 hours afterwards. So they have a very keen sense of smell and when they think they're onto something, they obviously won't uh, won't let let it go. Wow. Yeah. It's anyway, really scary. It is terrifying, isn't <laughs> that it? Is scary. She had another amazing story about how she was eating dinner and something brushed up against a leg and then she looked down and there's an enormous three meter Komodo dragon underneath. Under the table. Under the table. Like begging for scraps. Yeah. <laughs> she jumped on the table. Anyway, being a ranger in Komodo National Park is not for the faint hearted. Um, she was incredible. Anyway, so these are fearsome alpha predators and um, now I'm in with all the dragon stories. Let me tell you some things I learnt about the dragons. Okay. So number one, many people think that Komodo dragons kill with their deadly saliva. Um, you might have heard this. I think we were talking about it before yeah, I yeah, left. Yeah. Yes. I thought their saliva contained this plethora of bacteria and viruses and when they bite their prey... Their prey doesn't immediately die, but instead becomes wounded and then the wound becomes septic and then they die from this sort of like the infection from the wound. Well, it is true that Komodos have some pretty nasty stuff in their mouth, uh, but a lot of that's got to do with the fact that they do eat carrion and dead stuff all the time. And also their teeth are actually like quite embedded within their gums. So if you see them opening their mouth, you can't really see their teeth. You can just sort of see this sort of like gummy, gummy overlay. Yeah. They sound harmless. But they have very sharp teeth. But this gummy overlay gives a sort of lovely place for bacteria to grow. The double whammy of having 
um, of eating a lot of carrion and then having this good place for bacteria means that um, they do have a lot of bad bacteria in their mouth. However, they also have huge venom glands that open um, to ducks at the front of their jaws. Not D-U-C-K-S, not quack, quack, ducks. Ducts. Ducts. Yeah, exactly. So in 2009, researchers found um, venomous, a whole lot of venomous substances, including proteins that prevent blood clotting and widen blood vessels. So it's this mixture of the venom and then also the venom that stops, you know, blood clotting. Also, the fact that they're basically a three-metre-long land crocodile and getting a bite from that is going to hurt regardless. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah so the, the take-home message is don't get bitten yeah, yeah. regardless yeah. of what you're thinking. Yeah, imagine getting bitten and going, oh, ha, ha, it's not really, the saliva's not really dangerous. It's only got my arm <laughs> off. Anyway, yeah, indeed. Yeah. And I think they've got a similar thing to like sharks when they regrow teeth because they'll, they'll bite and sometimes the teeth get embedded in the wound. So this like gross, you know, bacteria-filled teeth like actually get embedded in the nasty wound. It just sounds awful. It just sounds awful. Anyway, researchers in Australia are milking Komodo dragons for their venomous and trying to use the properties to make new drugs. So there you go. Number two, research published in Nature in 2016 showed that Komodo dragons can actually reproduce both asexually and sexually. So they can revert to parthenogenesis so is, if given the opportunity. If there's no males around, the females can lay fertile eggs? Is that how that works? That's right. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like split in two. Yeah, it's, so it's called reproductive plasticity um, and it's only been observed in Komodo dragons that are living in zoos, so females that are living alone in zoos that don't have any males around uh, switch from sexual reproduction to asexual reproduction and lay eggs that produce clones of themselves, pretty much. Because you know how, like, if you if a lizard loses its tail, sometimes it'll grow a new tail, and you always wonder, will the tail grow a new lizard? But maybe it'd be like that. <laughs> no. No. Okay. <laughs> so this is sort of common with lizards and a common trait in island species, which makes sense because if you're living on an island, um, like the dragons are, you might have a hard time finding the right guy slash. Uh, a mate or any mates mm. at all, really. Well, I mean, yeah, if you, if you think of how, how did a lizard get to an island in the first place, it may have been one lizard mm. getting yeah. there and then it yeah. sort of populated the island. Particularly if you're a three-metre-long lizard with um, <laughs> stinky breath, then you may have trouble finding a mate. In a mouthful of rotten bacteria. Yeah. yeah. And also, last thing that I learned, the dragons don't just live on Komodo. So there are actually discrete populations of these animals on four different islands. So there's Komodo and another three islands, Rincha, Gili Montang and um, Gili Dasami. So researchers undertake genetic analysis um, and tag the dragons twice a year. They tag them by branding them, but because lizards lose their skin, they have to brand them a lot. Like they have to find find them and um, and mark them every six months so they can count how many they have. Currently, there are about 5,000 living within Komodo National Park and um, the dragons on the island of Komodo are the most diverse and then the smaller islands have a lot less genetically diverse dragons. Special conservation efforts need to be made for those islands, which is difficult because, according to Ranger Lillian on the smaller island of Gilimontang, the Komodos are actually heaps more aggressive. So that Komodo dragon that just like sat there and let me t- let me take a photo of it, 
and that wouldn't happen on that island. So tourists are not allowed to go there. They're just trying to attack everything that comes near They them. just attack everything that comes near them. I am wow. hearing yep. Jurassic Park music now. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So if you really want the true Jurassic Park experience, then you know where to go. Head to Komodo National Park. One of the most widely used agricultural chemicals in the world has once again been getting some really bad press from a lot of media sources, uh, including some some uh, pretty sciencey sources like Cosmos and Science. And that's pretty much the sciencey as you can get. That's about as sciencey as you can get. But um, probably the the first thing that people will think about is the recent civil court ruling in California that has seen chemical company Monsanto ordered to pay $296 million US to a plaintiff who claims his cancer was caused by the herbicide Roundup, which uh, basically has the active ingredient called glyphosate. Um, So Monsanto invented glyphosate in the 1970s, uh, and it's now out of patent. So there's about 800 products around the world made by various different companies using glyphosate as its active ingredient as a herb control, a herbicide uh, weed control agent, basically. Um, so the chemical itself, glyphosate, uh, acts on a specific enzyme found in chloroplasts in plants, which is the green pigments in the plant leaves, which is where photosynthesis takes place. So they're the the uh, the powerhouse of the uh, of the leaf, um, and these enzymes uh, put together amino acids that then go on to become various hormones and vitamins within the plant. So the glyphosate knocks out that enzyme. It blocks the action of the enzyme. And then the plant starts to starve to death because it can't produce the hormones and vitamins that it needs in order to continue to function. So eventually the plant dies. Um, And one of the reasons it is so widely adopted is that specific enzyme is not found in animals. So it was one of the reasons that it was so widely adopted is it only affects plants, Um, whereas some of the uh, chemicals it replaced had all sorts of effects on um, plants and animals and other life forms. They're much less specific. That's right. Yeah. So they were yeah less selective, but and and also had sort of side effect toxicities on other things as well. Whereas this one specifically uh, targets the uh, the plants and a specific biochemical pathway that doesn't occur in animals, so it can't really uh, cause any problems with animals, supposedly. Um, and are there any toxic uh, side effects? There was, a, there was a case uh, in, well, some years ago now when it was still under patent where the surfactant, which is a wetting agent that's added to... Like a detergent uh, type thing. Like a detergent. It was found that the surfactant it was being mixed with was actually toxic to fish and right. frogs and aquatic animals. So they changed the formula um, so that it, they, they had a special formula for use around water, water. courses and things like that. Um, but other than that, not really. there's not really any evidence that it causes any harm. But back to the uh, trial in California. Now, as I said, it was a civil trial and it involved a jury sitting uh, in, in court to make a decision. Um, the jury decided that the plaintiff developed 
non-Hodgkin's lymphoma after using a glyphosate-based product as part of his job. And the jury concluded that on the basis of that, it was caused by the herbicide. But it's really difficult to establish causality in these kind of situations. Um, I mean, one of the one of the main things I took from reading a lot about this case was that he didn't apparently wear any safety gear at all when he was doing this spraying. He said that he had the chemical like dripping off his hands and off his face on windy days and things like that. Whereas in Australia, you would be covered up. Uh, you know, you'd be yeah, wearing, wearing a spray suit, equipment. and yeah, yeah. Mm. You'd but have that doesn't doesn't that support the case equipment. that it's actually the chemical doing it. Then, if he wasn't using the safety, well, no, because there's no. There's no demonstrable way for it to cause cancer, as far as anyone's been able to show. So most of the case that it was the Roundup that caused cancer was based on the IARC ruling from a couple of years ago, which was that cancer is uh, that glyphosate is a probable cancer-causing agent. But nearly everyone who's not in the IARC has rejected that finding. So there's not really any science to back up they're just sort of going well we reckon it might be um but no one's actually been able to produce any uh good quality evidence that it does cause cancers um the other thing about this case is that yeah there is a correlation he did do this job where he was spraying the chemical and he did develop cancer and he was diagnosed with cancer after having this job but the specific cancer he has which is uh non-hodgkin's lymphoma apparently takes years and years to develop. And a lot of people have said, well, it actually takes longer to develop than the period in which he has been diagnosed. And so that the cancer may have already been developing when he took that job. It's also difficult to work out this kind of causation from one case when you've got one person like if because often with um particular things like this, you know, you can't draw a direct line, but you say you are more likely to get a certain cancer with exposure to this kind of environmental influence. Now, cause and well, effect yeah. there is hard to establish. You need to have that you know a number of, a lot of statistics to look at that. Having one person saying oh this happened and then that happened, therefore that thing A caused thing B, is very difficult to say. Absolutely, and and there's you know there's epidemiologists and scientists who study cancer looking for these kind of patterns all throughout populations. Um, And there's a lot of people using this chemical because it's such a widespread chemical, but nobody's been able to pinpoint a specific epidemiological um, problem associated with the chemical use because it is so widespread, you would think that it would have popped up in lots of places. Um, But even if these causality questions could be answered, they're not really something that should be decided in a court of law. A court of law is a specific uh, situation. They're really questions of science that need to be answered by science and not by a jury. Although so, although things like um, you know payouts to people who are injured by something or even like if you look at consequential changes to um, precedent and that kind of stuff is decided in law. So science can say one thing, but ultimately the consequences are going to be the legal system. Absolutely. Um, the other thing is that the nature of legal evidence is very different to the kind of evidence that is used in science and the the kind of proofs that you can use as evidence in, in a courtroom are not really the same as scientific proof or evidence that you would use. And, you know, some of the things like reasonable doubt is not something that we apply in scientific terms. But if you've got reasonable doubt, you can actually win a case in a court um, based on, well, we don't really know, so we'll just 
you know, um, let them off or say that they did do it or, you know, whatever it might be. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to A Lost in Science. There is a lot of science around glyphosate because it is so widely used. Um, and it's, I'm not going to say it's a perfect solution to uh, weed problems, but it does contribute to high productivity and low cost of agricultural products in the developed world, which does lead me to another reason that glyphosate's been in the news lately. There was a, a report um, recently published on the effect of glyphosate on bees, and bees are in the news a lot because in some parts of the world um, it seems like there are declining bee populations. And bees are important for agriculture. They pollinate a lot of crops, um, certainly you know fruit trees and things like that, but also, also things like canola, which is uh, a huge agricultural huge crop. crop. Um, so there have been multiple studies on the effect of spraying bees with glyphosate mixtures directly, just actually spraying it onto the bees uh, and feeding feeding bees glyphosate directly so that oh, they actually God. consume it um, to see if it showed any ill effects. But none of those studies, and there's been sort of seven or eight decent-sized studies about this, had uh, could show any impact on increased death rates of bees or reproductive rates or growth rates of young bees in beehives. Uh, and that was even at doses higher than you would find being used in the real world. So in in field application rates are much lower than what they were testing uh, on the bees. But a study study published a couple of weeks ago on the effect of glyphosate on bees was picked up by multiple media sources and was at best unreasonably interpreted or misinterpreted. Um, So there's a few headlines claiming glyphosate contributes to bee deaths. But after reading the study the evidence doesn't actually show that that's the case. It may have some impact, but the, the evidence in the, in the published study is pretty flimsy. So the paper itself, uh, describing their method, states that hundreds of bees, didn't say how many bees, just hundreds of bees, were taken from hives and treated. So they don't actually give an exact figure. And the bees that were taken got one of three treatments, a low dose or a high dose of glyphosate or a dose of sugar water, which was supposed to be the control. So then they released the bees back to the hives and then came uh, to check on them after three days. And they recovered 20% of the bees. So they actually painted the bees to see if that would... Put, so a, they could, put a little dot on them. Yeah, so they could yeah. recover So they should them. know. They would have the number of how many there actually were. They must have known but how many. But they can get a 20% figure. Um, yeah. Yeah, but they, but they don't tell, they don't tell us what they don't tell us what the original uh, number was or the number that they recovered. So well, we can't strange. actually make up. We can't actually figure out if, if this is even statistically um, anything to analyse because we don't have any actual numbers to analyse. Uh, they found that there were changes to the gut flora of the bees on the low dose of glyphosate, but not on the high dose of glyphosate, and no change in the bees that got sugar water. Change to the gut flora? Yeah. So they measured the gut oh, flora of these as, bees first and then gave them indication the of what? Of, of, of their bee gut health. flora. So of the, the gut- hypothesis is, is that the glyphosate is somehow affecting the bees' gut flora. Yeah. And that may affect their health in some way. Yeah. Right. So the fact that the low dose they had changes in their gut flora and the high dose didn't suggest that it's probably a statistical anomaly 
out of 20% of bees recovered. But if there's no distinguishable dose effect, so if something has an effect at a low dose, you expect it to have more of an effect with an increased dose. But that's not what they found in this study. But I heard they had a um, they had a um, a theory for that. They they didn't they claim that perhaps you know some of the um, the high dose hurt the bees so much that, that a lot of them died and they only got back the ones that survived. But they have no evidence that this yeah, happened. They didn't. They don't have no. Evidence, so yeah. it's it's a bit of a, you know that that should be in a discussion at the end. It should not be in the results section of the paper. Right. And that's where you need the numbers. You absolutely well need the numbers, yeah. and without numbers, I don't see that this has got. Any value at all, really. Um, The other finding was that none of the bees had lost their gut flora entirely, uh, and they still had all the same species of microbes present in their gut as they did before the study. They had slightly different proportions uh, at the three-day sampling. So really, it's, you know, they, they found a small effect that it changed, maybe changed the gut flora of, well... 20% 20% of the bees that they sampled, but we don't really know, don't know how many how that, many that, that was. was. Um, so it's really not robust evidence, and it doesn't give any reason to conclude that bees are dying as a result of exposure to glyphosate, because generally glyphosate's used quite early in weed growth, well before the weeds are flowering. So the, you're not likely to be spraying bees directly, and they're not likely to be feeding off flowers that have been sprayed uh, with glyphosate either. The other questionable part of the study is that this is trying to, they're trying to link the use of glyphosate with declining bee populations. We use glyphosate widely in Australia. It's one of, as I say, it's one of the most widely used agricultural chemicals, but we don't have any bee problem with bee population decline. So mm. if, if that's not happening, then what, what's the connection? If there's no, uh, even there's not even a correlation because it's not happening in Australia, but we still use glyphosate at the same sort of rates that other people do. So it's a questionable connection in the first place, let alone with no actual numbers to go by. But um, the the thing, the reason I really picked this up was just because of the basically poor reporting on a lot of in a lot of I I would have thought were generally more trustworthy sources um, connecting it to unconnected things um you know one of the one of the articles i read went on a big rant about how you know mentioning the cancer case and mentioning uh, all these other things which had nothing to do with the the bee study and didn't really analyze the bee study to any extent but it just what do you think's going on there oh i think it's just probably just a glyphosate uh, fear yeah there's a lot of people who are anti a lot of people anti monsanto um which is you know I guess that's they're a big corporation. People don't really know what they do, but there's bigger corporations doing exactly the same things whose names you never see in the news, like BASF, for example, do all the same sorts of things that Monsanto do, make agricultural chemicals, do genetic modified crops, all sorts of things like that. They're the main cassette tapes, don't they? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're one of the biggest uh, chemical and, you know, okay. um, yeah, companies in the world. But, you know, it's it's an anti-Monsanto thing. And the funny thing is, Monsanto just got bought by Bayer for some ridiculous amount of money. So um, I wonder if Bayer are maybe regretting their purchase at this point with all the bad press going out. And that's all we have time for in another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks so much for joining us. Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR and broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. 
please get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us at lostinsci at gmail.com, on Twitter at lostinscience1, or on Facebook on Lost in Science on 3CR. Or just tune in again next week when Stu, Chris and Claire will get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.